I'm Jessica Abel, and this is Out on the Wire, the show about making stories step by step. And this is a workshop episode where we discuss and collaborate on work made by our listeners in the Out on the Wire working group. Each regular episode, we pose a challenge for listeners so you can develop your own stories. The Working Group is an online platform where you can post your responses to the challenges, get feedback from fellow listeners, and from us. And then, in our workshop episodes, which happen every other week, we choose some of the interesting work from the Working Group and talk about it to see if we can help move it forward. My collaborators today are Benjamin Frisch, producer of Out on the Wire. Hi. And fellow cartoonist, Matt Madden. Hello, everyone. Getting involved in the Working Group is easy. Just sign up for my newsletter at jessicaable.com slash podcast, and we'll send you an invite. And by the way, if you're having trouble getting into the group, send Ben or me a message through my website or on Twitter and we'll fix it right up for you. Ben is especially good at this and he's at Benjamin Frisch on Twitter. As I said, each workshop we're responding to a challenge posed in the previous episode. Episode six challenge was... Write a scene. Is there a chronology to lie on? Great. Start with that. If not, put your ideas or bits of tape in an order that builds from individual elements to coherent argument. Ask yourself questions. Why is this scene in the story? What do we get from it? What does Buffy feel? What change does it represent? Remember, just as stories are about change and characters are about change, scenes are about change. Write it, then iterate it. Read it out loud to someone and get feedback. Record it, then listen on your headphones while taking a walk. Rewrite. Then, check it against your hypothesis. Does this scene change what you understand about your story? Today we're going to talk about several scenes that were posted in the working group. Uh, Ben, do you want to talk about the first one by Katrina? Sure. Um, So this scene is by Katrina. It's a a scene from a a personal memoir that she's working on. Um, She was kind enough to actually record it for us. Um, So uh, we'll be playing her voice. So Katrina is an ethnographer, uh, and she's working on a book um, that's a book of ethnography um, about the culture in Swahili culture, I believe. And, um, in Zanzibar, right. And and she incorporates a lot of elements of her own life and experience. She married a Zanzibari man, and um, it seems the book is about, in at least large portions of the book, are sort of about that experience. So um, here's Katrina's scene. It's hard to imagine what my friends must have thought when I came back from Tanzania at the end of July 2009 and told them I was dating a Zanzibari man named Hamid. A man, they asked? I know, right? We laughed. I was as surprised as them. I broke the news of my new romance to my friends slowly. Did I call Hamid my boyfriend? I hate that word. I would have preferred the ambiguity of the Swahili mpenzi, Boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, lover, beloved. But I was stuck using English with them. I definitely didn't tell them that he was actually my mchumba, fiancé. Despite having split up from Stan almost five years before, I was still waiting for my divorce to be finalized. Plus, I knew my friends would think I was crazy to have agreed to marry a man I'd only known for two weeks. That I knew they would find it crazy should have been a good indication that it actually was crazy. As the Swahili say, Akipenda chongo huona kengeza. If one loves a one-eyed person, one sees only a squint. The Swahili equivalent of love is blind. There was a lot I couldn't see at that time. 
I was most nervous about sharing my news with Susan, a friend with whom I'd had an on-again, off-again romance. The last time I'd seen her was the day before my trip, when she'd come for dinner. Let me walk you to the car, I said. My mom was visiting, and I wanted a moment alone with Susan. In front of the palm trees and flowering birds of paradise on the lawn of my apartment building, we hugged goodbye. She joked, I just want to throw you down on the sidewalk and have my way with you. I think we both had a small glimmer of hope that we would try dating again when I got back. But just a few weeks later, Hamid had plunged into my life, and now I had to figure out how to tell Susan. It was early August when I sat on her couch with my feet folded under me, a glass of red wine in my hand, and said, I met someone in Zanzibar. I knew it, she said. Something you posted on Facebook made me wonder. She took the news in stride, asking me questions about how we'd met and what had happened. Today I wonder if she was also hiding her real feelings about the news, but that night I was simply relieved that she wasn't upset. She even seemed supportive. I didn't tell her that Hamid and I were already engaged, but she knew that in most Muslim cultures people don't date before marriage. Do you think you'll get married? she asked. I was vague, but I think I said we probably would eventually. And will you convert to Islam? I don't know, I told her. He wants me to, but I need to read a lot more about it before I'd feel ready to do that. We talked for another hour, finishing off a bottle of wine. You'd have to give up wine, she said. Never, I exclaimed, laughing. At the end of the night, she summed things up. Wow, she said. It's like you're marrying Africa. Okay, so Matt, you're coming to this cold. Ben and I have read this already. What are your first thoughts? Um, overall, I, I thought it flows really well. I, I uh, got sucked into the story pretty quickly. There were a couple of points where, just in terms of the, um, the the writing and sort of unveiling of the information, I got a bit confused. Like when she talks about uh, breaking the news to her friend, uh, was it Susan? Where there's sort of there's sort of a double flashback. You know, she's talking about the day she left for Zanzibar. And then flashes forward to an, another flashback to when she tells him about her, about meeting, you know, this this guy she's dating. So, I mean, that's just a matter of setting up a bit more clearly. One thing I found interesting about this is it's it's not really a scene in the way that we normally think about scenes as just like a setting with characters talking that's sort of chronologically distinct. It's really an emotional scene. Like it's, um, it's sort of, it tracks an arc, but it's an emotional arc, not a chronological one. I think that the emotional art could be clearer. I feel like, um, you know, if we say that we talk about how scenes are about change, the change is her going from not having told her friends to having told her friends, um, or at least told them something. And she's still hiding a lot. And I know um, from other discussions on the group that secrecy is a really big interest of hers in this book, exploring the idea of secrecy and keeping secrets and what how that happens and um, and what happens to people when they keep secrets. And that's all really interesting that's in here, but I feel like that could come forward much more so. The idea of, um, like, bringing forward the idea of her feeling like she has to hide and then e and hiding even as she's revealing herself. Mm -hmm. um, I I'm not sure, I don't have, like, a specific place where that could come forward, but I feel like it could be a little bit more, she could talk about it a little bit more explicitly. And this is early on. This is the and, first scene of the book. Okay. So she has an opportunity here to um, really set the stage for the whole book. 
And I feel like it's a, maybe a little too gentle, you know, um, the, the initial line is a good line. You know, it's hard to imagine what my friends must have thought when I came back from Tanzania at the end of July 20, 2009 and told them I was dating a Zanzibari man named Hamid. That's like a pretty big bombshell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's good. Uh, and then she goes, uh, you know, a man, they asked, which brings up the whole bisexuality thing that she refers to later. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, it would be interesting to see whether that thread gets played out very strongly throughout the book. From other things she's written, I don't get the, I get the sense that that's a minor thread. The idea of um, her history as as a bisexual person versus his expectations and those kinds of things is in there. But I'm not sure that's the main thing. So I'm not sure that's the first thing you want to say, basically, after that opening line. She, she has mentioned that um, when she does marry this guy, that there is uh, a certain culture of sort of secrecy and like things that she's, they know, but you're not supposed to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I sort of thought that maybe the bisexuality was sort of one of those elements in her own life. So maybe that's an element that can sort of draw through the whole story. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I've, I mean, again, with the idea of secrecy and the idea of um, like that this opening scene is about how she is already, even the m- minute she walks in the door back in the U.S., she's already hiding something about what's going on in her life. I feel like that's the first thing. That's the first beat you want, you know. Uh, you know, everybody's like really surprised and, oh my gosh, they said I'm so surprised. But instead of that, maybe the first thing you want to get into is it took me, you know, a while to, you know, break the news, which she says, but I feel like that's the spark of the book in a way. That's the thing because that that has a huge effect on what happens throughout the book is her inability to t- to talk freely about this relationship with, with her friends and family. Yeah, I mean, coming to this cold uh, again, I, I was kind of assuming that there this was in some context that's already there. So if you're really saying that the book is going to start with uh, um, a reference to, I mean, I, the, her bisexuality, I, I I think it's a clever way of introducing it in a sort of sideways way. But it also kind of, um, if that's not really the theme of the book, it's a bit of a misdirection because it kind of diffuses the uh, the fact that it's a, a man and and they're, they're actually engaged to get married, and she might have to convert to Islam, which we later learn. Uh, when she says, you know, a man, they asked, I know, right? And, and we laughed. But, you know, for a new reader coming into this book, it's putting them off on a, on a, it's setting the wrong clue where they're like, okay, this is about dealing with bisexuality in Africa or something like that. And maybe that's not really a theme, in which case it might just be a better way to, to better to reframe that slightly. Right. That's uh, what I was really, trying to get yeah. at, that secrecy is really what she wants to be talking about. And secrecy is what she seems to be talking about here a little bit, but that needs to come forward. And then the whole bisexuality thing you know, we figure that out when she's dating a woman named Susan, you know, <laughs> like that, that pretty much covers that base right there. Uh, and maybe that's enough. I don't know. It's also interesting. I felt like there are a couple of places as she was reading where I thought the scene ends and then it doesn't end where she talks about the Swahili equivalent of love is blind. There was a lot I couldn't see at that time mm-hmm. beat. There's something going on there. That's like a, that's an end of something. And maybe um, maybe it really is that's the end of a scene and it needs to be beefed up a little bit, talk about secrecy, talk about love is blind. And then there's a new scene, which is with Susan, you know, and that's really more separate and um, not a continuation of the same thing. Then there was one more, which is, oh, I met someone in Zanzibar. That had a sense of beat and it had a kind of ending feeling to it. Um, 
And again, that might be an indication that it's fine. It might be fine. Just leave it as it is. Or it could be a thing where you can take the whole actual scene where they, she actually talks to Susan about the whole thing, move that somewhere else. Like you have the opportunity then to treat this more like, um, you know, Joe, Joe Richmond talks about scenes as little blocks. So that could be a little block where she actually has this conversation with Susan. That could happen actually somewhere else in the book if it's useful. One thing that I would add um, is something that I actually recommend of you a lot of the times, Jessica, is to try and think uh, a little bit more visually. Um, she describes the scenes clearly, but um, I think just for, for the sake of the reader, it's it's just nice to like see the scene more. Like, where are you exactly? Like, was it cold? Was it hot? What did it smell like? Um, what did the room look like? Um, those sorts of literary details are really nice in this kind of story in a memoir especially because they help us really put ourselves in the scene i agree although um potentially this opening scene like again if we if we sort of break it after the swahili love is blind um that opening chunk there that is a non-visual scene that's a scene that's about she's talking in general about her feelings about something and and sort of generally about some events that happened before she gets into description of specific events. And I think that's okay. I mean, I think that, you know, not every scene needs that. But definitely when she's actually reporting dialogue, you know, that's when we want it and that's when we actually get it a little bit. You know, we get the the detail about the um the palm trees and so on. Uh the palm trees and the birds of birds of paradise plants outside the apartment building. That's a nice detail. It places us in, you know, Southern California or Florida or somewhere really warm, you know. So that's great. But again, like those are two different types of scenes, I think. Should we move on? Yeah. Okay. Okay, next we have um, Sunny Stalter-Pace, who's another academic writer who's also trying to ins- to um, take a turn slightly more to the narrative. But in her case, it's not going to be autobiographical at all. It's a bi- biography of a dancer named Gertrude Hoffman, who um, was very well known, I believe, in the I'm going to mess this up. The 20s and 30s, I think. is the early 20th century. Early 20th century. So she was most famous for imitating other people, you know, actually um, creating uh, derivative versions of famous dance performances that were happening. Um, And she was quite successful. Gertrude Hoffman strode into the Hammerstein's Victoria lobby. Morris Guest had asked her to be there at seven, the start of a great partnership, he'd said. He was standing off to the side, nervously fingering his watch chain next to an imperious man in a wicker chair. Guest signaled to her, and she picked her way through the crowd. My dear, said the man in the wicker chair. How would you like to pull off the biggest coup in vaudeville? She had been having quite the week. The judge had decided in her favor, telling Colonel Henry Savage that owning the rights to the Merry Widow operetta didn't mean he could stop her from spoofing it in her act. With Max's music history in her back pocket, she'd testified that even Savage's score was itself a borrowed work. Now Willie Hammerstein asked her up to his office, where he and Guest shared their plan. She would sail to London to watch Maud Allen dance Salome at the palace. Just like the Merry Widow's Waltz, she could recreate Allen's dance at the Seven Veils. It was a surefire sensation, Guest said. You can play the roof garden, 
Hammerstein gestured toward the ceiling, all summer long. For a thousand dollars a week, she said. Hammerstein hedged. It was a lot of money. He turned away. Hoffman took stock of her situation. She wasn't as highbrow as Isadora Duncan. She had name recognition, though, and a stage manager's eye for all the little details that made a number. A week of performances, maybe two, and she'd be able to recreate it to a T. No, make it better. Twelve-fifty a week, she said. You should have heard me the first time. Five days later, she and Max boarded the steamer Kron's Princessin Cecile en route to Southampton. She was twenty-three, and she was going to bring Maud Allen's dance to New York before Allen got the chance. So what do you think changed in that scene? Well, that's a very obvious change in this scene. She goes from not having a gig to having a gig and having a really important gig. So um, she's going to go, to sum up, she's going to go to London and sit uh, be in, in the audience for a week or two weeks of performances of the Dance of Seven Veils as performed by Maud Allen, who was the sensation of London at the time. And then she's going to learn how to do it herself, go back to New York and do it and basically copy the entire performance and including the costumes, including apparently including the program, like everything is copied from the original, which I find fascinating. So it's a very it's a very clear change. And I really love the way it establishes her character where she's sitting there mulling over, you know, oh, I could totally do. I am. I'm worth even more than that. (laughs) You know, she raises her own price before she even gets an answer. There's sort of an academic quality to the writing, too. She uh, she's actually mentioned in some of the comments here that Sunny has mentioned. Yeah, Sunny's mentioned that um, uh, she can footnote every bit of this except like one one little part. And so this is all you know well documented. I I do wonder if that sort of approach is maybe limiting. Ultimately, I mean it's limiting in a sense, in the sense that you can't just say whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that. Given she, I mean, this is this comes from um, this this scene comes from Morris Guest's autobiography, apparently, and he reports down to the dialogue, except for apparently the line that um, Hammerstein says of "How would you like to pull off the biggest coup in vaudeville?" And I suggested just turn that into reported speech instead of turn it into a, in, instead of being a quote, and you're probably in safe territory. So it's all been it's all documented, and I think that what you're saying, Ben, is she could push it a little further. She probably could make it a little bit more dramatic, a little bit more. You know, some more details, drop some more details in there. She could, you know, probably find pictures of, you know, where are they? The Hammerstein Victoria. So there's going to be pictures of that and she can describe it more fully. Um, I, I didn't find it to to read like an academic text at all. It felt like, uh, you know, there's lots of information in there, but it's woven in, I felt, in a pretty literary way that didn't, uh, you know, the fact that I have like the name of the steamer, you know, adds color to the story without being yeah, like, it should be noted that the ticket was bought on, you know, at X date or whatever. Um and I don't know if she actually is going to footnote this stuff. That would certainly make it look more clunky, you know, visually or more academic, let's say. But um, from judging from this, you know, chunk of test from the scene, um, I actually think it does a nice job of blending that that academic rigor in the format of a more uh, literary and narrative format. I agree. I think it. I I don't find it academic at all. I, I think it's. I mean, I think that she can continue to push in that in the direction of more descriptive writing, um, just in the effort of you know, making it a, a yet more engaging scene, but I think it's already an engaging scene. It already feels literary. 
And it's interesting, too, because she says right at the beginning of this post, she says that she's just totally not used to this kind of writing. But she's doing a really great job with it. I mean, she's out on the wire here for sure. Um, and there's actually some nice visual visual detail in there, too. Um, the line when she says, he was standing off to the side, nervously fingering his, uh, his watch chain next to imperious man in a wicker chair. Um, like that's a really that's a really clear visual image. Like we mm-hmm. when when I heard that I saw that, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that that's something that to me is a mark of like good of good writing. Right. I'd like a little bit more of the description of the lobby though, because um, sitting in a wicker chair could be anything from like a porch chair to like one of those, and probably is one of those giant, beautiful wing chairs. You know, those really impressive big chairs, and he's sort of like holding court like a prince. Now that you mention it, that is one small hiccup I had when the reading where, where we were in the lobby, which I think of as being a big empty space. And then she's described as uh, picking her way through the crowd. I'm like, wait, is she in a, in a, in a theater now? I'd like it. So maybe, yeah, a bit of a setup of, of people mulling around, it's like right before a show or something like that. Right. The Hammerstein Victoria must be a theater, right? That's, that's the name of, I don't know if it's a theater or a hotel or, you know, it's not clear to me. In context, it's probably a theater. Um, but yeah, the lobby during a show, and if it's during a show, why is there a wing chair there, and you know, or a wicker chair? I'm see, I'm inventing the wing chair thing. Uh, so that's a, a bit of an issue. And so basically, I feel like this scene might be half again as long, uh, maybe more, to try to break down the action a little bit more and make it a little bit more clear where we are, when we are. Like the second paragraph when she talks about um, how she'd been having quite the week, and the the d- judge decided in her favor. There's this kind of um, very comfortable and nice way of sort of offhandedly referring to this case, but there's a bunch of names being dropped in there really quickly, and it's hard to follow. So I think if it got broken down, action got broken down a little bit more, you know, um, she had a great week, um, you know, in the case, in the, she'd argued in court, blah, 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 and the judge decided so-and-so, and she's got Max's historical, who's Max, you know, do we have to remember who Max is? You know, I guess I guess that's the stuff that felt a little bit academic to me. The, um, the sort of there's this like precision mm-hmm. to like you know remember is sort of in a way that human memory is, I guess, more fallible or less precise. Well, yeah, but it's not her memory. It's an objective. Guess, yeah. You know, it's it's a, there's a narrator, so it's fine. I think, but I do think you need to break it down and make it slower. You know, that give us more details about the actual, you know, put us in the court. You know, maybe the, the court case doesn't need to happen in the middle of this scene. Maybe that happens, you know, I don't know. I like that she's referring to it in the sense of, like, b- basically Sonny is giving Gertrude Hoffman power. She's saying, like, she's having a great week. She thinks of herself as this stuff, and that's why she's able to ask for money in this bold way. Yeah, and I think we should grant, too, that this seems like it's a first attempt at writing this tough town, too, and she might be trying to figure out what she can fit into one chunk of text. And this presumably is not the beginning of the book, but somewhere, you know, in the narrative already underway. Um, so this this kind of question, it, it is a bit heavily worded there about the court case stuff, but um, presumably that's going to have been discussed earlier in the book at that point, which might mean she would shorten it, or else it won't seem so kind of wordy and all this new information, because uh, although I agree about uh, the fallibility of human memory, I also know that when you're in the middle of something, you just want a court case, you're replaying every single detail, you know, for like a few weeks, you have a moment where everything really is that, and you're like replaying it in your head, I won that case, and blah, 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 and running through all the names and all the details, actually in a very specific way, which then- Do you uh, know this from personal I'm, experience, <laughs> not, not coming out of personal experience Something here, you but, have not told uh, me. <laughs> 
Um, I walked into that one. Um, <laughs> but uh, but there is like a, a sort of hyper clarity in the for immediate memory, which is actually a good device because you're actually talking, you know, reconstructed memory from autobiographies and other sources. And putting it in a narrative, you can actually use that kind of immediate memory of, of an intense experience to pack in a lot of information in, in, a, in a narratively, you know, plausible way. Yeah, I mean, I also want to acknowledge we know this is a first draft and there's going to be lots more stuff that comes. And and that's why we're talking about it, to try to get it to that place. Okay, are we ready to move on to the next one? Yes, and this is going to be a dramatic reading. Yes. Um, so <laughs> this is um, Jerry Lazar, who has been super active in the group from the beginning. Um, and I've I've wanted to talk about his stuff for a while, but it's always been a little bit difficult because what he's doing is a sort of small radio drama about... And possibly comic later or something. There's some... He was talking about trying to find an illustrator. Like, he's got a bunch of different ideas for the story. Mm-hmm. And the story is something he uses already to do... Um, to teach people um, arbitration and um, conflict resolution. Maybe not arbitration. Conflict resolution. So it has a parable feel to it you know does it it, like he's not really reaching for deep characters here he's he's trying to play out in a way that's memorable different methods of conflict resolution Mm -hmm. but the the same rules will still apply and um to a point yeah yeah. but i mean the characters are not um they're not really three-dimensional characters Mm -hmm. you know they have a role and they play that role in a parable kind of way and so there's there's four there's three characters and a narrator here um and so we're gonna we're going to try and do a, a reading. Right. So I have to be Maya and mom. Uh, you're going to be, no, you be Jonah and you be narrator. Okay. Okay. Fight nicely, kids. Scene one. I want that orange. Yells Jonah, age nine. Don't touch it. Screams big sister Maya. It's mine. Oh, yeah. Being older doesn't give you the right. Out of my way. Mom hates when you fight. One orange, two kids. What could be less fair? I'm taller and smarter. I'm stronger, so there. Mom to the rescue. Stop fighting, you two. You both know exactly what you should do. Where would you be without me? I swear, I thought I taught you to learn how to share. It's so easy. She says to her kids with a laugh. Give me that orange. I'll cut it in half. Mom wields the knife like that biblical king, never imagining the yelps that her sage act would bring. No! No! Maya whispers to Mom. I need the whole thing. It's true for a top-secret project that I'm making for you. In Mom's other ear, Jonah says, Tough. If you cut it in half, then I won't have enough. But there aren't two whole things to split. Only one. Says Mom. Half an orange is better than none. No, No, it's it's not! not, Exclaim Jonah and Maya as two. Half an orange is useless for what I want to do. And the same thing holds true for me. Two. Let me teach you both a lesson in how to compromise. We can't always win the one and only grand prize. Sometimes we all have to make a sacrifice. And a glaze starts to form over all four of their eyes. Let her sacrifice. I'm younger and smaller. Let him sacrifice. I'm older and taller. You like her better. That I can see. You'd give me the orange if you really loved me. Stop, says Mom. This orange has nothing to do with the love and affection I have for you two. All I know is this silly bickering must cease. Now fight nicely, kids, or you'll never make peace. 
Let's arm wrestle. No fair. I'm weaker. You're stronger. But your hands are bigger. Your arms are longer. What on earth do physical traits have to do with how we divide this orange in two? At wit's end, Mom says, Now here's what we'll do. I'll leave the room and leave the decision to you. And Mom points at Maya and Jonah turns blue. Then Mom points to Jonah and adds, And you, you don't have to convince me who's wrong or who's right or who's more deserving. I'm staying out of this fight. You'll have to resolve this all by yourselves or I'll just give it away or eat it myself. As she leaves, the kids stare at the fruit in the bin and each soundly thinks, Now how can I win? The Out on the Wire players take a bow. That was fun. Yeah, <laughs> that was the year. That was good, Jessica. Thank I was you. impressed by yeah, well, I've been practicing. your childhood voice. Yeah. yeah, well, I I get a lot of um, modeling in my home for this particular kind of uh, scene. Yeah, well, this is a true to life scene. We even rhyme at home when we argue with our kids. <laughs> well, I, I wonder if this is like as somebody with kids, if, if this is the type of thing. This is supposed to be useful. You know, this isn't just a story that's about being. Um, entertaining in the in the sense that the other stories are this is this is supposed to have utility do you think that this would have utility well i do think that it's got a very susian rhyme to it and i think that that would that will be appealing to children that they will like that and if it's drawn in a silly way they'll like that too i definitely yeah. think that our kids would enjoy the silliness of the rhyme the sort of bounciness of it and if it was drawn in a you know appealing way um, in a comic or a, an illustrated book, I think that they would get into it. I definitely think that that would work. I, I I think it actually would probably work better voiced though. Like just hearing it, like hearing those rhymes or reading it out. Mm-hmm. Like I think that that's, I think probably more effective. Well, just to to give one specific uh, visual example that we we have at home are uh, some of the tune books that are these like comics for young readers that aren't necessarily like uh, you know geared towards. Um, teaching conflict management, but many of them do deal with things like sharing the Benny and Penny books and the uh, Mo and Joe, who are like two, you know, their brother and sister stories. Um, and they're, you know, they're primarily really fun stories. They're all written. Some of them are also written in verse in the dialogue and everything. very much like this kind of structure. Um, and our kids and, love them. Yeah. So I do think it'd work. I, I do think it'd work as a, as a comic or other kind of visual format very nicely. And I, I also I'd like to point out that there actually there is a structure here. You know, there is a there are stakes. There are small stakes, but there are stakes. Mm-hmm. There is um, an emotional charge. Uh, there are turning points, you know. Um, so even though this isn't, you know, care like character based emotional storytelling, like the beats are still there, you know. Right. And it still is going to make sense in the same kind of way. You're still going to understand why the characters you know, want what they want and like we'll still be able to identify with them enough to understand, you know, understand the stakes, feel the stakes, you know, that um, we can see why this is all taking place in this way. Mm-hmm. I also think his rhymes are pretty good. Yeah. I was I'm, impressed. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that this was going to be in verse. Um, and <laughs> uh, yeah, I was really pleasantly surprised. I do. I do think, though, um, in defense of your notion, Ben, that this might be better as a um, audio play than comics um, or illustrated prose because it takes a little bit of practice to get those interchanges to work. You mm-hmm. know, there's some moments where he's using, um, he's saying like, you know, says mom and then mom has to talk after that. And it's it's a little tricky to read it on the page. 
That's totally an aside. In some ways, I think this, I mean, the story continues on and there's several other attempts by other people to solve the problem in different ways. And they're all modeling different approaches to um, conflict resolution. Uh, in some ways, I feel like the um, the moment when mom says she'll cut the orange in half and then the kids say no feels like it's the end of the scene and the rest is sort of like denouement. That's the, that's the crisis point of the scene. And it's almost like a complete arc. And then you have denouement after that that's going to lead into the next attempt to to solve the problem. Right. Something like that. Or or the definitely that the you know, you think she has a solution when she's just gonna cut in half. It seems obvious, but then the kids reject it that solution, which is a surprise. And that definitely is an end of that scene. Um but it definitely it feels like it's picking up the next scene. Basically what we're having here is like a scene and a half, you know, of this fragment here. Cause we have the first scene that ends in the mom the mom not succeeding. And then she comes up with another strategy which she says, All right, here, I'm gonna leave you guys alone with it. And she walks out the door. And basically, it's like a cliffhanger, you know, for the, this next scene. But uh, right, know. yeah, it does feel like the beginning of the next scene. Like, what's going to happen? You know, she walks out the door, and that does feel like the ending of the scene. But, but to me, actually, it's more like the no of the kids is the, actually the end of the scene, which is totally irrelevant to you if you have the entire text here. It doesn't matter where you know, in terms of the reading experience, where the scene actually ends. Well, um, thank you, Jerry, and thanks for to everybody else who submitted this week. Yeah, it was really fun. That's it for episode 6.5. Join the Out on the Wire working group and get involved. To get an invite to the group, just head over to the show page at jessicaable.com slash podcast and sign up for the newsletter. At the show page, you can get show notes for all of our episodes, subscribe to us on iTunes, find links to our social media accounts, and find out about our Patreon, which is a great way to support the show. We've got the entirety of our interviews with Larissa McFarker, Jonathan Mitchell, and Stephanie Fu, plus Ira's story about his reporting trip with the Twin Principles, and downloads of music from the show. We're also offering hand-drawn internet avatars for you or for a friend, and even a personal story consultation with us. Please note, though, as we're reaching the end of our Season 1 journey here, we're going to start winding down some of the bigger rewards, so check out the Patreon soon. You can find me on Twitter, at JCCAble, Benjamin is at Benjamin Frisch, and Matt is at Comics. Out on the Wire is produced by Benjamin Frisch with the support of La Maison des Auteurs Angoulême. We'll see you in episode seven, Dark Forest. See you then. Bye. Bye. Hear you next time.